let's assume that this Old Testament God is real, yeah. right? Why wouldn't he tell Moses and people after and Jeremiah and Isaiah, wait for Jesus to come, my son, who's here right now? Because he's pre-existed. Why, where is, how come Jesus just randomly appears in the first century, but you don't hear about him? Ah, so that's interesting. When King Nebuchadnezzar puts Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego into the fire because they refuse to worship the golden statue that he's erected, then why are there four people in the fire right now? And the fourth, his appearance is like the son of God. Which is what the Hebrew phrase is for the angels. There is no word for angels. It's Benny, Benny Elohim. Son of God. Yeah, so, but that doesn't. I'm just kidding. I'm just pretending I'm a Jewish guy. I'm a Jewish rabbi right now. I'll say that's an angel. So, so, Benny, look, Job. You know the Book of Job. Oh yeah. It's it a, says, one of the, uh, and the Benny Elohim align themselves in front of El El uh, El Sadai. That's the angels. Angelos. I love the etymology of it because it's used for Hermes, the messenger of Zeus. It's used for Artemis. It's used for Nike. You know the goddess yeah. Nike who victory. Nike Angelos, the Nike the messenger. Then the Hebrew, they don't use Angelos, they use Beni Elohim, son of God, sons of God. So sons of God are angels. The Lord shall go forth and fight against those nations, fighting as on a day of battle. That day his feet shall rest upon the Mount of Olives. The Mount of Olives shall be cleft in two from east to west by a very deep valley. Matthews uses that and says that when Jesus was on the cross, that the earth had a chasm. You know what I'm talking about. Mm -hmm. yeah. There is one big problem with the Matthew passage. None of the other four gospels talk about the chasm and the earth opening up. It's only Matthew that seems to remember that. So I'm glad and that's that kind of a big thing that you think historic, and Josephus doesn't talk about this. I think about it though. Matt, why would Matthew be the only person to remember this? And no one else in history, all the historians, Josephus forgot about so a, an event like that. that And welcome back to the Gnostic Informant, and you are about to attain true Gnosis. And today, my guest, if you've been watching this channel for over a year, you might know him. This is Richie English. He's a musician, composer, who uh, has an a, a interesting past in history, been through a lot of ups and downs, but you're a devout Catholic now. Devout. And that's why I wanted to bring you on today, is have a discussion about Catholicism and what it is about Catholicism that that brings you to it. You got it. Welcome to Gnostic Reformant for the third time, right? The third time. Yes. During Holy Week, no less. Oh, nice, <laughs> nice, nice. It's really good to be back here. Thank you, everyone, for uh, letting me join again. Uh, and Neil, I love you, buddy. Proud of you. This guy, 40,000 subscribers. I can't get over it. I was here uh, at the beginning when yeah, you were. it was a big deal, uh, you know, to break about 500 views. And now, you know, <laughs> let me just real quick, I'm going to give you a little recap, just a couple highlights of some of the stuff we said before. And then you got all these people sitting around, you know, swilling their wine at their little cocktail parties and believing that they're fancy, talking about this like with a smug, holier-than-thou attitude that has no correspondence whatsoever with the real world. And there is a real world out there, okay? Just because a bunch of academics coming up with provocative titles tells you otherwise does not, in fact, make it so. 
there is such a thing as beauty. There is such a thing as elevation. Sully them all you want to, but there's a backlash. These people are throwing the boomerang a little too hard. And the thing about boomerangs is that they tend to come back with a certain. All right. That was just, that was, this is this kind of stuff we get into when we're here. We, we, uh, we go deep in this stuff. We go deep. But yeah, so you, you became a Catholic when? So, um, I was officially confirmed this year, uh, or I'm sorry, uh, last April. Uh, actually, it, it's almost one year to the day. Uh, and before that, though, I, um, I had grown up uh, the son of a preacher man. Uh, my father's a Baptist minister. I love my father. And uh, I grew up uh, being... Uh, church pianist for his church and I was a uh, church pianist for about 16 years. I grew up Baptist essentially and then I just uh, as soon as I moved out on my own I did what everybody does essentially and I wanted to find a way to differentiate myself from my upbringing so I tried really hard to uh, discover some type of new exotic thing to believe or thing to subscribe to and my faith um growing up had never really mattered to me i don't really know if that was because i grew up around it i mean my my, my parents weren't um oppressive at least with me they were not oppressive about it but i just grew up you know being permeated with uh that line of thinking about christianity uh the baptist way and my father is, you know, a pretty traditional guy. He's Lutheran, essentially, uh, even though he, he's the pastor of a Baptist church. But the point is that I, uh, as soon as I got to college, uh, at that point, I, I had never had a drink. Um, not because I, my, my parents were, you know, iron-fisted about things, but it was just because I, I, I had an aversion to it personally. Anyway, I got to college. I won't, you know, belabor this but uh <laughs> i developed a serious drug problem i really bought into the myth about the tortured artist especially being a classical pianist and nice it uh it sidelined my life um it put my life in a serious amount of jeopardy i you know i pulled straight a's i was playing with symphony orchestras i performed for the dalai lama when he came in 2006 twice in the same day i remember a i got to ask the dalai lama uh because at this time I, I was in the depths of alcoholism and I was, oh, in the, wow. yeah, I was in the depth. Like that was the first, the night before I played for the Dalai Lama, uh, was the first time I had ever drank a full bottle of vodka by myself because I, I was 21 and I thought my, I'm 38 now. And I, I, I thought to myself, well, tomorrow I'm playing for the Dalai Lama. He's a world leader. Y you know, um, what am I going to do from here? My, my life is, you know, going to be an anticlimax and I got morbidly depressed. And so I used it as an excuse to self-destruct and I, I played really well, uh, but I was hung over. And I remember I got to ask the Dalai Lama, um, can you be a Buddhist and a Christian? And I was sure he was going to say yes. I was positive, you know, that he'd give me some type of universalist thing, but I, to my amazement, he, this is exactly how he said it. He said, no. Wow. And I said, well, what do you mean? No. And he said, no, if you're going to be a Christian, be a Christian. If you're going to be a Buddhist, be a Buddhist, but they're not the same. And he must've seen something in my face, uh, when 
when he responded that way because I'll never forget this. He held my hand, uh, and he this is exactly what he did for 15 seconds. One Mississippi, two Mississippi, three Mississippi. For 15 seconds. For 15 seconds. And, uh, and then he walked away. And he had divested me of an opportunity to kind of, you know, forge my own uh, universalism with the blessing of a religious world leader. So I felt even more alone and even more defiant and despondent at that point. I was just burnt out. Christianity had never spoken to me in my entire life. It was never that I disbelieved. Uh, one thing I was very grateful for in my upbringing was a very rigorous approach historically uh, to Christianity. So everything that my father, you know, uh, preached about f for the most part was was steeped in um, the, the the history of the faith itself, and that spoke to me the way that it speaks to you know Neil when he gets into um, things about uh, the evolution of Roman society. I, I just found it galvanizing. I and I love so, it, yeah. but it, it never it never mattered to me. It it wasn't. <laughs> And it sounds so trite to say this, but um, strangely enough, it wasn't until I saw uh, a fairly recent production, I think it was done in 2001, of Andrew Lloyd Webber's Jesus Christ Superstar. Uh, I saw it with my mom, and I remember, it was the first time I had seen it, and I remember thinking, the lyrics in this are so brilliant, because it's essentially, for anybody who's ever seen it, it's the gospel according to Judas. Mm. And... So it's from his point of view, and this is something that annoys me in general about, um, you know, how, how, how I see many Christians act. Uh, you, you get these protesters who've never seen it, you know, who are just saying it's blasphemous, it's this, it's that. Like, of course it's blasphemous. It's through the eyes of his betrayer. And it sh but it's, it's pretty steeped in, in the Bible. But what it brought home to me was, oh, Jesus had friends. Jesus had, because the relationship between Judas and Jesus in Jesus Christ Superstar is horrifically intense. And you can see how much both of them loved each there, other. And there actually is a gospel of Judas that was in I know I read it. It, yeah. it, and it's, and it's exactly what you, it's Jesus is telling Judas, you have a role. Everyone's going to hate you. They're going to call you the 13th. They're going to be outside of the 12, but you have to do it anyway. So, and I, I'm wondering, cause People hear that and they're like, yeah, so what? It's not in the Bible. Who cares? But the, the Bible, that's, that's a later thing. Early Christianity, th these books were taken seriously. Yeah. Um, so you're, and this is interesting. I don't mean to cut you off or anything. No but problem. I, I really like how you don't, you're not necessarily like f just like going along with like the church tradition. Not that you're not following tradition, but like you're also exploring early Christian thoughts that have been forgotten. Yes. I, um, I'm glad that you said that. Uh, I, I'm not, uh, I am a traditionalist at this point, but my faith in general, in anything, I mean, whether it's my faith in the Lord or whether it's just my, my, my faith in, um, friendships or, you know, my faith in anything that matters to me is not something that comes easily to me. So I, you know, I, I, I look at my wife, for instance, who I, I was recently married, um, December 30th and, uh, I, she just has what I guess I would call the gift of faith. Um, not that it comes easily to her, and I'm, you know, I'm not going to speak for her, but it comes easier to her to 
believe in the miraculous than it does to me. Everything that I believe for me has been very hard won. It's been like a real struggle. There's a verse in the Bible um, what, before Jesus performs a miracle uh, where, where the man uh, involved calls out to him. And he says, help my unbelief. And it's my favorite passage in the Bible uh, because it's the one that speaks to me personally the most. And you brought up early Christianity, and it was it was so important to me to get um, acquainted with how it all developed because I, you, you know, I I'm not going to patronize anybody watching the channel. We we all know that the Bible is not one single book; it's a compendium of sixty six different books, more if if you're Catholic, which I am right. now, uh, and you know, written over the sp written by everybody from royalty uh to people that are essentially vagabonds and then unknown authors at, you know separated by hundreds thousand you know years and the harmony of the whole thing you know it, it becomes even more miraculous when you realize that none of these people even really knew each other i mean besides the new testament i mean like i mean these people are separate separated geographically they're separated by entire eras of time and right. everything's you know leading up to this one central figure the 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 figure of Jesus and so i knew all of that but it never spoke to me on a personal level until i saw jesus christ superstar and really? i saw because the most harrowing passage the whole thing is essentially about judas realizing at a certain point that he's been born to betray jesus <laughs> and that he's destined for damnation and the, the it, it was and i never you know, thought about it. I'm surprised Calvinists don't have the Book of Judas as central to their doctrine because the Calvinists are all about predestination. Yeah, well, it's hard to get around predestination when the Bible clearly says, uh, you know, those whom he predestined, he uh, he knew. I mean, you know, I, I I'm the Lord. I write the you know end from the beginning. Uh, and also, when you think about it in scientific or quantum terms, which I always do. Uh, you have a, a being that exists outside of the confines of time, you know, which is illusory in and of itself. Of course, it's it's just a construct, as we all know that we've imposed. It's a function. It's a byproduct of gravity, and so it would be impossible to, you know, think of God as up there wringing his hands, kind of wondering how it's all going to come out. Um, but it's an uncomfortable topic for for Christians. It brings up a whole lot of things that you know people don't often like to think about. I, I used to see my parents arguing about that because my father's a staunch Calvinist, and my mother—I I mean, I don't know if she's amended her opinion, but she's not. And they would just get into it over this. And I grew up around that all of my life. But you know, so all of these things. Jesus was a historical point of fascination, but he was a personal abstraction for me. And it wasn't until I saw that um, rock opera, Jesus Christ Superstar, that I it just brought it home to me. Oh, Jesus was also a person as well. And he had friends and he got tired and he had doubts. I mean, I knew all of that functionally speaking, but it never. I didn't know it here. I knew it here. And uh, but still, I wanted to forge my own identity and. Um, you know, the, the more success I, I, I got as a composer and a pianist and, and, and a musician, the, the more it, it just became moot to me. And I wanted to, you know, define something different. And then I got into a composer. Um, his name is Alexander Scriabin. 
and I just wanted to touch on this briefly. We all tend to think of composers uh, as, you know, these, the, these old white guys who are, wear stockings and wigs. It, it, nothing could be further from the truth. Uh, you know, these guys li lived hard. Uh, Mozart died at 36 of probably alcoholism. Chopin died at 41. Schubert, who wrote Ave Maria, died uh, at 30 uh, of syphilis from having sex with a prostitute. Uh, and he was impoverished and, you know, so they, they, they led hard, real lives and Alexander Scriabin was at the tail end of the romantic period. So it's the 1890s, early 1900s. He was from Russia. He was a contemporary of the composer Rachmaninoff and Scriabin is fascinating because Scriabin was my first encounter with a composer that was not only not a Christian or not, you know, steeped in that tradition, but w w was joined a cult. He started out writing music that uh, was uh, carried on the tradition of Chopin and we pianists love Chopin. And uh, then he injured his hand while trying to learn a piece by Franz Liszt, who was a virtuoso pianist, really difficult music. It's, um, and he got depressed and he started getting into composition. And then he discovered uh, theosophy, which had just begun in Russia by, uh, it was essentially managed by a woman named Madame Blavatsky. Yeah. And it's such, uh, I mean, you, you want to talk about Gnosticism. Oh and yeah. Mysticism. That, that was the, those are the people who brought back Gnosticism. Yeah. Theosophical and, and also Carl Jung as well. Yeah. But I, yeah, those are, I, I had a feeling that you, uh, in, in particular might be interested in the theosophists because, uh, it, it, it's, it's so complex and yeah. Um, talk about it. Oh, sure. Well, I, so I can talk, you know, with some of, with more authority about how it affected Scriabin, uh, because the, okay. I mean, in, in terms of what they actually believe, like, I, I, I don't feel qualified because it's just, it, it, it's so complex and I didn't get to know it intimately enough, but the way that it affected Scriabin, he wrote 10 piano sonatas. And it's a great way uh, to trace a composer's development stylistically when you observe their, their piano sonatas. Beethoven wrote 32 of them, and, and we can clearly see how he developed as a composer. Scriabin wrote 10, and one through three are very, you know, I mean, they're beautiful, but they're, they're kind of run-of-the-mill, if you like. And then the fourth and fifth sonata happen, and it's like music from a different universe. And at this point, he started, uh, you know, he was steeped in theosophy at this point, and he started, it, it. not only did he start experimenting with new harmonic languages, he started, uh, you know, building, like, his, his his chords differently. He he just eschewed the uh, tradition of the Romantics entirely. He, he forged his own path. The effect that it had on him was, was, I guess, what you would call seismic. And that appealed to me as a composer. I was like, well, something really impactful happened to this guy, and it's very mysterious, and I want to explore it more. And anyway, uh, he by the sixth sonata, he wrote a uh, um, music that he believed was possessed, and he, he wouldn't even play it. And then he wrote the seventh sonata as sort of exorcism of the evil of that piece. And then by the tenth piano sonata, he titled it Insects Kissed by the Sun, and he died shortly thereafter... Um, from, wow. from sepsis but before he died he envisioned a piece called mysterium for full orchestra and it was going to be played on the himalayan mountain range uh in a temple over the course of seven days with like 
acolytes who would come uh, to sort of worship at the altar of art. And then it, it, it was going to herald uh, the apocalypse. It was going to herald an opening to the portal of the Numenor. Of course, of course. But not before he died of blood poisoning from a cut from shaving. Wow. You know? uh, but anyway, I bring him up because I got obsessed with his music and his life. And then from there, Christianity just lost its luster, you know, lost uh, any sense of being fresh. Wow. My drug problem had gotten uh, infinitely worse. Um, I was very fortunate, uh, by the grace of God, to be rescued from that. And I'm, I'm 12 years sober now. And I, um, it was at that point, me getting sober, that uh, I reapproached my faith. And I wasn't Catholic or anything declared. I was Christian, but I found myself only going to Eastern byzantine uh, like the ukrainian orthodox catholic church and the reason that i kept going to their masses was because it was the most reverent thing that i could find where is this so there uh, there's a church it's called uh it's ukrainian orthodox yeah it's uh it's so and there are, and no because i've recently had a guest on from ukraine and because of the war her father actually was killed in the war by the way jeez but because of the war the orthodox church in Ukraine is aligned with Russia because they're there. That's the church. The Orthodox church in both Ukraine and in Russia can trace the roots back to the original, the original Orthodox yes, church can. in Greece, exactly in Constantinople. So that's, I'm so happy you said that because that is the reason that I, it, it appealed to me. I like, um, their tradition of worship is almost unchanged. And real quick, just to anyone wonders, why is that the case? Why wouldn't it be the one that's in Greece? Well, Greece, when Greece got taken over by Constantinople in 1543, the church had to flee. They got on their boats. They went up, th they went up through the Black Sea and into what was part of the Rus at the time, uh, Kivin Rus. Yeah, I don't know. Rus. That part I don't know. But I do know that they fled north, set up shop there, and have been there ever since. Yeah. And uh, they've um, admirably. And that's Ukraine right now. Yep. So that's that's the original deal. That's the church. That's the original church. It is. It's the closest thing to the uh, original Christian tradition that one can find. Um, there are there's the Eastern uh, Catholic rite, and then of course there's Roman Catholicism, uh, and the Eastern one just. I mean, that seemed very mystical. Uh, you know, which really. Oh, they have to a me. they have a um, a patriarch who holds a staff yeah. that looks like the Mer Mercury staff. It's got the intertwined serpents on it. Yeah. Yeah. I'm like, whoa, these dudes are into some real Christian magic. It's shit, hardcore. Man. Yeah. But that what that did for me was it brought back. See, I, I, I have always had a fundamental distrust of this entire business about speaking in tongues, you know, which it, to me seems to be fundamentally unaligned with, you know, what it says in Scripture about that's such what, things. That's what the Bakkans were doing, too. Yeah. In the, in the, the Bakkanalias. But it is also in Acts 4 or 5, I think it is, where they're like, they started speaking in tongues and they can hear each other's languages. Even like I was speaking French, you're speaking Spanish. So that's real tongues. Is so yeah, there, there, in... is a, there is a debate on what that means. People think that the people who are speaking tongues in these in these um, churches are actually doing it wrong. Yeah. It's not about, yes. the, that, they're getting that from the Bakkans the Bakken, who are just blah, 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 blah. blah. But what you're saying is you're saying yeah. is it's about speaking, speaking and having a language someone... you've never uh, known or previously studied, and crucially, having somebody there who can understand and interpret it. Yeah. 
because of course, like anybody can, you know, sit there and, and just shunda uh, the she came in a Honda, you know, and and do all like it, it's so I that's the spirit, yeah. I know, I know what you're get what you're saying, and it creates all types of you know issues, and just it, it always made me, it still does, it, it makes me profoundly uncomfortable, and uh, and but at the same time. My my faith for my entire life, you know, we do read about miracles. We do read about power. We do read about being touched by the Holy Spirit and all these things. And I was thinking to myself, like, well, where is all of this in my own life? It can't just be metaphor. And then I discovered the Eastern mm. Ukrainian church, and I realized here is the proper mystical approach to, uh, you know, if, you, if you're going to purport to worship a being that is, you know, responsible for not only creating this universe but infinite universes if you subscribe to the multiverse theory which i do uh i'm just as though this universe isn't big enough if you know a cosmic power the architect of it then i thought to myself you got some uh, gnosticism going in, in yes absolutely yeah. Absolutely. They, they believe in the aeons. They're different aeons, and yes. this is a one so specific. We're, we're in one specific aeon right now, but there's an infinite amount of them. I agree with with all of that, and I never, you know, it was never presented to me in 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 a way that 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 seemed congruous with what I was reading. In, well, that, that's what the early Christians believe, and they what, they weren't called heretics until later. Like, yeah, because and you're saying so what you're doing is you're saying you're looking at this and saying. Yeah, you're going to call these people heretics, but they weren't called heretics when they came out with this. No. They, they were weren't. Christians. They weren't. Uh, I respect that. I got to admit, I, gotta, I respect that about you. Is your, and this is, I was talking to Michael Jones from Inspiring Philosophy about this. And I said, we're in the age of, of internet and academia has gotten to a point where we know so much about early Christianity. Why aren't we, why aren't Christians today looking at what the early Christians were doing? And like bringing it back to that, why are they so rejecting it? I don't understand it either, and it bothers me because for me it it was a transformative thing. The that's what I love about the Ukrainian uh, Orthodox uh, Church that I was going to was I realized like this is an unchanged tradition that is the closest thing that I can find to the Lord Jesus. Uh, and I, you know, if if, if I'm going to say I believe in in the Son of the Living God, then why am I? Surely I should want to get to the most uncorrupted. Uh, form of worshiping him. I want to be in the closest historical proximity that I can to him. And also, I want to be removed from the secular society that I am surrounded by 24 hours a day, seven days a week, at least for one hour a week. I don't want to hear worship bands. So, I don't want to hear any of that. I want to be in an environment that is you alien don't even and real, holy. You don't even realize how much you sound like an original or an, 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 early original christian because that was the whole point i'll give you an example of carpocratians one of the earliest documented christians that we know about their whole shtick was drop out of society start take your like for example this is what they did they started their own society out probably in the desert somewhere if you came to them and you wanted to join you had to sell all your property as it says in the book of acts that they, they came and they put all their property at the feet of the apostles. Don't keep any of it for yourself. Give everything you have to the church, and then you can come in. Once you come in, all the property, all the food, all the resources we have are equal amongst us. Mm -hmm. It's like... It's almost it, communism. It, it, no, it, it's it's, it's anarcho-communism. Yeah, it is. It's, it's like a dropping, prototypical form it's not, of... Uh, it's not governmental communism. It's dropping out of governmental. It's dropping out of society and starting your own society. That became a problem. That, that's why the, the, the people don't realize loyalties. It's not the it's not the it's not the Christians. It's not the like the type of Christianity today that was 
uh, pro- persecuted. It's that type of Christianity. Yeah. That's that's a problem. So I'm glad you brought that up. Um, my wife and I just recent, and I would encourage anybody, uh, Christian or atheist uh, and anything in between, if you just love um, a really artfully done television series, please watch a show called on HBO. It's called The Young Pope. And, I love that show. Yeah, <laughs> Jude Law. It gives a performance. I, 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 again, I, you know, I won't rehash the plot elements. Essentially, a very uh, young man, Jude Law, finds himself uh, in the position of becoming pope, but he's really, really hardline. But and you know who he reminds me of? Jesus. Yes, exactly. Because when you when you're reading the Gospels, you're, this character Jesus, completely unpredictable, going against the grain. He's saying, yeah, you heard before they said an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I'm telling you, yeah, love your neighbor as you love your – like he's completely flipping things on its head. But he's not, it's not all about loving your neighbor either. He's also hardcore. Yes, he's he also is. pulling out whips and kicking people out of his temples. Yes, he is. He's also talking – like he's also being really critical and really like – I don't want to use the word thuggish, but like that's kind of what he's doing. I So the, the four gospels uh, – Two of them are eyewitness accounts, and 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 uh, two of them are you know essentially uh, biographies shortly after the fact. But the Gospel of John is my favorite because it paints Jesus in all of his intense glory. Jesus was not the image that we have of this Europeanized, you know, like <laughs> commune living, Birkenstock wearing hippie, you know, who, who yeah, was, with the, with was the passive. Heart, it shows his heart, and he's just sitting there like. <laughs> so he, he, J- Jesus was a burly intense revolutionary uh uncompromising yeah. man and bring, yeah. who picked up a bullwhip and over th- and and threw over tables you know for any people that say Jesus never advocated you know or participated in any form of violence yes he did and the reason i bring up the show the young pope is this there when when um in the show he's pope pius the 13th he delivers a homily and i'll it's burned into my head because it essentially and like this particular passage in in this homily in this fictional show encapsulates everything that i love about the catholic church and why i converted officially last year to roman catholicism at one point he says um i don't want people uh that are on the fence about this i want people who are living this and breathing it 24 hours a day, seven days a week where they're searching uh, for God and who are fanatics because fanaticism is love. And as uncomfortable as that is, I could not find a logical way to get around that. I was thinking, oh, that's such a problematic statement. Nah, not really. I mean, like, yeah, fanaticism causes all kinds of, you know, misery to uh, people, but... At the same time, there is a flip side, and the flip side is a complete and total uh, commitment, and that's something that is diametrically opposed to everything that we find in our modern so-called culture, and it's that's why I converted to Catholicism in part, uh, in major part, was because I wanted something that... Uh, gave me a direct experience of the holiness that I was always reading about that until then seemed to be nothing more than an historical abstraction. And I wanted something that had a history that was hard won 
that, uh, you know, because things that, you know, don't establish themselves in history, like it or not, without some form of violence, for the most part, with, without actual upheaval. Uh, and it's just an uncomfortable truth. Uh, and, you know, the... I mean, even between Christians. Uh, well, I, another series I watched was The Tudors about uh, Henry VIII. Ooh, yeah. Yeah, you know, which is extremely uncomfortable, but it, a, a tour de force. But, I mean, it shows in all true stories. blood and glory, uh, or bloody glory. Um, the What about Borgia? Have oh, you seen that show? Yeah, but that show, I, I can't. So. What, a, what a dark time it was for the Catholic Church during the, and then Pope Julius. The, you know the show? I'm sorry, this is a little detour, but I have to say this. <laughs> That show ends. This just bothers me so much. I love that show, Borgia. They ended the series before all the good shit in history really went down. Yeah, Do you know yeah. what happens after that? Do you know you know his arch enemy, uh, um, De, La, De La Rova? I didn't watch it um, okay. all, all the way through. But in case anyone's watching this who, who saw that show all the way through, De La Rova, the guy who tries to poison Borgia and fails. And you know what really happens in real history after that? He ends up succeeding. And becoming the Pope. Borgia gets Borgia dies. Uh the, the daughter and this all his all his children get killed in their at early ages. Um Cesare Borgia gets gets found like in a on like a hill somewhere. He gets caught up and they kill him. Um she, the daughter she, uh, she gets murdered too. Anyways, the whole Borgia family's gone, wiped out, and then the next Pope comes in for like a month, poisoned. Another, and the next pope after that, Della Rova. He calls himself Pope Julius. He literally triumphs over the Borgia. And they don't show any of that. He's the arch enemy of the show. They make it seem like the Borgias win. But really, in real history, that did not happen. Yeah. So it's, it's like they literally just portray the exact opposite of what really happened in history. But anyways, well, go it, back to what you're saying. Shows, you, uh, you were talking about um, uh, Tudors. The, yeah, the Tudors. One of the reasons I love that show, besides the performance of... Jonathan uh, Reese Myers, who plays Henry VIII. I loved the fact that the show um, portrays, in all of its horror, the the violence between uh, Lutherans and 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 the newly burgeoning Protestants uh, and Catholics. I you know, and just how it's this pendulum that is swinging back and forth, and there's burnings yeah. and torture, and I was just, you know, because of course... Uh, that's what medieval Europe was, man. Or, oh, yeah, or, was... or, 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 or I have to say, post-Renaissance, pre-enlightened Europe was, like, all about this, this struggle between this the church that's been there forever, that's been, like, the church is in charge of academia, they're in charge of all social life, they're in charge of all... Uh, legal systems, right? There's also no way to read the Bible uh, before. Yeah, you had uh, you had to go to a Latin. You had to go to a Latin uh, minister, but all of a sudden, because of uh, Luther, because of some other people as well, you have all these different pe people rising up saying, "Wait a minute, we can Christianity doesn't have to be yeah. through a church." The selling of indulgences, the scams that were going on, and it, then like, you have Luther loved the Catholic Church. He just wanted to reform it, and then of course, like yeah. everything, it got out of hand, and 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 it, you know, I mean, to this day, there's still but, a huge antagonism. But thanks to Henry VIII, Henry VIII was the first person to really say, "You know what? We're we're done with this system altogether. We're starting an entirely new church." Yeah. The Head of the Church of England. So the they, Church of England, because like so the, he can marry the, Anne the Lutherans. Here's the thing: the Lutherans sort of like were living in the system that the Catholics set up. Yeah, they were sort of following suit. They were sort of like, 
okay, yeah, you can have some Lutheran priests here, some Catholic priests. But the, the Anglican Church was like, this is a totally different thing. It revolutionized everything. Because now you just now you have people who are just not even ordained just coming up and just starting their own churches. Yeah. And, you know, then you had a guy, uh, Thomas Cromwell, who, who got in there uh, and, you know, really just became uh, Henry VIII's bulldog. And Henry VIII, of course, was, you know, for all of his innovations and, uh, you know, certain brilliant decisions he made, at the end of the day, he declared himself head of the Church of England so he right. could marry Anne Boleyn and divorce uh, crazy. His, his wife. How many wives did he kill, too? Six. Like, six or, yeah. or, no, he didn't kill six. Uh um, he did kill most of them. He right. married six times. Yeah, and he put a lot of them to death. Yeah, Anne Boleyn got her head lopped off. Um, he, uh, his first wife died of natural causes. Uh, but you know what? You know what happened is there, a lot of people think okay, it went uh, Middle Ages, uh, medieval, Renaissance, Enlightenment. Yeah. But like, there's actually a step in between where absolute monarchy came back for a while. Yeah. Where you have Louis the Fourteenth, complete control of everything, no more Senate, no more this, no more church, no more this, complete control, and he ruled for seventy years. He was he he I became didn't know it was that long. he became king when he was like eight years old, and he lived all the way. He lived a long life. He he has the longest wow. he has the longest uh, reign of any king in world history. I did not know that. But he but he was such a he was a monarch dictator type of type of person. That as he, as a result of his type of, like you get, you get Kings, like, like, um, King George, right. But as a reaction to, to that, you have the, the real liberal revolutions of France and America, because that, that's the thing. People think enlightenment and then we have liberalism and constitutional republics. No, no, no. After, during the enlightenment, you had absolute monarchies for a little bit. Mm -hmm. It got even. It got. It went. It almost went more right wing, and before it got better. That's part of the reason that uh, Thomas Cromwell um, appealed to King Henry VIII so much is because it was uh, Cromwell's view that, uh, it, like, he had a new version of the divine right of kings. Uh, you know that you're chosen by God and let no. Which uh, is why. Which know, is why you get these you get these monarchs because they. I'm a king. I'm chosen by God. I'm better than everyone else. I'm better than the yeah, pope. Exactly. Who's the pope? He's under my under my foot. Yeah. So Hen Henry the Eighth. Uh, you know, in that sense, you know, I would say was you know, probably more revolutionary than everybody else for the most part uh, before him because yeah. he was the first one to essentially really flip. He started the that. He started that moment. He started that moment. But. England still today has that system in place. Yeah. It's just not as effective. But the king at any moment can do what he wants. Mm -hmm. It's just a matter of how much is how much friction is going to be caused by it, how much rebellion. How much people, are people going to listen to him? Like if the king said, "You know what? I'm just going to take control of this whole city right now and send my army." Like would people like would there be rebellion in this time and age when we have all these everyone's educated now? People people actually like can can organize now it's a different time now we're like before people just kind of like oh okay let's do it oh king said so but like i'm and, and so w when the queen just passed away recently and the new king what's his name again charles. charles when he got anointed and um when he got brought in as king they did you watch that at all no did his coronation happen i, I don't know if it happened yet yes it, completely religious ceremony like 
it was all religious. It was like you are chosen by Jesus Christ on this day, blah, 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 blah. And so you will put your hand on the Bible, do this, that, and third. Watch the whole thing. It's completely religious. And this is in 2023. So, um, yeah, he was courted. That's it, was, a, it, was, it was a couple months ago. That's a a perfect example, you know, of, of a terrible truth that we all know, of course, you know, which is the amount of things that, you know, can be corrupted that are done in the name of Christ. That's, uh, and, that, that's a, and if you believe in a devil, uh, as I certainly do, that uh, for me, that reinforces uh, his reality because it, it just kind of shows his, you know, the evil genius uh, that we're, you know, dealing with a being that exists outside of space and time, uh, you know, the, the, uh, the fall uh, that Lucifer experienced, the, you know, revenge sort of suicide mission that, you know, he's currently on now, but the way that he seems to routinely target the things that are holiest uh, for uh, infiltration and corruption, which is, of course, borne out by the long and shameful history of infighting in the church and uh, subjugation and all types of things that I, you know, often, uh, with some justification here, uh, atheists and, and people that are, uh, opposed to Christianity cite as, you know, reasons that, that they, they would never subscribe to the faith. Of course, we also know that there was a great South Park episode about this where, you know, the, uh, it's a glimpse into the future and, um, religion's been done away with, but then the communists start, you know, experiencing, schisms and the atheists start getting into wars about the right type of atheism like it's yeah. gonna happen because it's human nature it's already to happening. fight over things you know <laughs> you already like, do have that in the in the atheist community whatever that means yeah i don't you really have know what that you means. do have like you richard dawkins who thinks he's going he's like he really wants to place himself in front of the whole culture war with genders gender and saying it's only two genders and so all the other a lot of atheists are like no, you're wrong. This is what the Phil papers say. This is what the scientific say. And so that's, I'm not going to get into that, obviously. But like, <laughs> but like, it's interesting how within atheism, there's giant divides. In, and not just that, in a lot of areas. You have like this, you had in the beginning of the Gamergate's era, I, I vaguely remember this. Um, There was a, a lot of skeptics, like Armored Skeptic was, was one of these guys. They were a very anti-SJW. You have uh, there's a few people like that that um, they blew up on YouTube because of the whole GamerGate anti SJW movement, and now now those are like the people who are shunned by other atheists, right? Because they're a lot of atheists are really are, you know, for for reasons that are obvious on the left. Mm -hmm. Most of them are. It doesn't mean that atheism is le is like a left. Atheism is just one thing about what you believe about God, right? It doesn't mean it has nothing to do with political. It's just that tendency, like it tends to be a people lot of people who are atheists are on the left. Tend towards a certain as as you know. Yeah. Well, I don't even know if you can say this about you know Christianity anymore. That it, I mean, I guess traditional Christianity tends towards the right, uh, but now there's so many different shades of everything. It, it just reinforces, uh, you know, what we're talking about with atheism, what we're talking about with Christianity. It just reinforces the fact that any human system or any human belief that's quantified, that's uh, deployed, that's subscribed to by a number of people is going to experience or be used by its adherents as a cudgel mm. to hammer some other group. It's not unique to Christianity. It's not unique 
to any faith or lack thereof. It's what it is unique to is the human condition. You don't see any, um, I was gonna say you don't see animals doing this, but of course animals aren't self-aware. So I don't, that's kind of a false equivalency. So never mind. But, uh, the, um, well, I think there's levels to self-awareness. I don't think it's like a, you're either a zero self-awareness. You think it's a spectrum? There's a spectrum. Cause okay. there's, right, kinda like you, that. Know, you know, that they're, right. they're studied on elf, elephants that know that they know where they're going in the, in jungles. Well, elephants have the greatest memory uh, of any animal in the animal kingdom. Yeah. Was, I, I just read oh, an article about that. Actually. And lions, they'll shun other lions. And they're, they have the awareness to know, I'm shunned. I can't go back there. Really? Yeah. Like banished? So the, yeah, banished from their from their packs. So there is awareness. Really? It's just not I as... did not know that. They just don't have okay. the human awareness is on another level. I'll, like, obviously. You have to get... But, like, there are some birds. There are bees. There are ants. There are really brilliant species out there. Ants? Look at the ants, how they how they organize. The Bible actually uh, cites ants. It says, consider the ant, thou sluggard. You know, how it never sits and it spends its time gathering in preparation. Yeah, but do they know about under the ground, how they have a whole system of cities? And, uh, and they have systems. a queen that they protect. And there's like, mm -hmm. there's bigger ants that are the warrior ants. They only come out when there's battles. Yeah. They uh, stay underground unless something bad happens. There's a caste system. Yeah, it's a, and that's awareness, dude. That, or whatever that is. I don't even know what you'd call that. Yeah, so I, you know, it, it's uh, I'm citing a lot of things from from popular culture, but yeah, uh, being in the arts, um, art speaks to me, and it tends to be, you know, the way that uh, I, I would say the Lord reaches out and touches me is through, you know, what I identify to be some great piece of art in some field, and it does it have it has a big impact on me, and the reason I had brought up the young pope was was because. He's so hard line and he brings back an exclusivity uh, to the Catholic faith in, in the television show that, you know, is, is just seems to be pretty, um, it seems to be all, like all, almost like a, a fever dream uh, with our current reality. But what do you think? Let's. Can I ask you this? What do you think sure. about the actual pope right now? Because uh, he's getting a lot of the actual pope. I don't the like devil. the actual pope. He's called the devil by uh, evangelicals and Baptists because he's being pro LGBTQ. He's also saying that you know we should let science rock out, and if we are find aliens, then let, let us find aliens. Who so cares? that's one of the reasons that I did convert um, to Catholicism uh, in part is because I now this is not exclusive to Protestantism. But it's something that I encountered with uh, in my own life more frequently uh, as a Protestant than, than I ever have in the Catholic Church. As a Christian, it never even occurred to me that the earth was like 6,000 years old, ever. Like that, uh, you know, I've heard that's that only, all that's the my young, life. That's the young earth creationists that, that are it, deep, like, deep south, uh, Bible thumpers, Bible belt people. Oh, there are plenty of people. I mean, I, I, there are plenty of people that, that I know that, you know, uh, subscribe to that. And it's not that I believe that God couldn't, you know, do that. But here's, you know, what I, I do believe. Reading the, the, the creation account in Genesis, for one, like, even as a kid, when I would read through it, I just always kind of assumed this is clearly an author who is trying to detail an experience that is so beyond human comprehension that the only way that he can effectively communicate it is to put it in human terms. There's a Do tree, I'm... there's an apple, right. this person ate it, suddenly it opened right. my eyes. I want to tell, this is going to be good, because we can get into this for a little while, because I want to get, I'll tell you what I think first. Okay. And this actually is funny, because we were talking about human awareness versus animal awareness. And, um... 
this might sound like I'm contradicting myself because I was talking about how animals are aware, but so just hear me out. This is what I think what's, what's going on in this, in this passage. This is happening right after God creates all the animals. He creates the earth. He creates all the, you know, whatever. He creates everything. That, let there be light. And then all of a sudden you're in this passage where Adam and Eve take, take from this tree that opens their eyes. They realize that they're naked. Remember that. That's important. They realize that they're naked. And so now all of a sudden death enters the scene. Or before it didn't enter the scene. Does that mean they were they had eternal life before? I don't think so. Let me explain why. What, he, what the author of this text is actually saying is that humans are are cursed with the knowledge of death. Whereas animals out in nature, they're just going along and just going with whatever they whatever they're functioning on the, present moment instinct. Yeah, like I gotta eat, I gotta fuck, I gotta sleep. That's all they're doing. They're just but they don't they don't even know that their cousin just passed away. They don't know that like some actually some monkeys do have mourning. We've seen that in nature where a monkey will die, all the monkeys will gather around him and they'll mourn. But, that, but just ignore all that. Let's not get like too picky with this. But the what I think the author's trying to say is humans have the curse of knowing about death. And that knowledge of death is something that is going to torment us forever. Which is why and, and so that which is why you kind of need a uh, religion. Well, we can get into the whole death anxiety thing, but that, 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 that just to stay on this topic right now, that's what I think the author is portraying in this text: that humans have this curse of the knowledge of death that other animals don't have. That yeah, I do believe that. I uh, the um, what seems equally important in the Genesis account though is uh, the knowledge of good and evil, as well. Right, and uh, and um. I, so I'm glad that we're talking about this because this is an illustration of, of like I see other Christians get so up in arms about age of the earth and about you know whether or not evolution is true or if it's a blasphemous time it's just like did you know that that's actually a result of the enlightenment yeah before yeah. the enlightenment Christians didn't talk about that shit they didn't care after the scientific revolution all of a sudden all of a sudden you have Protestants that said it has to be either 100% true or it's not, it doesn't matter at all. And the Catholics were like, what? What are you talking about? Who cares? Well, here, here's <laughs> here, here's the thing. I mean, like, you know, people talk about, well, you know, the Bible is inerrant and there's absolutely, you know, nothing contradictory. That is true. I'd want to be very clear about what I, that that's true. However, we need to talk about what is inerrant in the Bible and what is not contradictory. The Bible is about essentially it's like it's telling one fundamental narrative and that's everything leading up to the person of jesus christ who is the son of the living god and god himself who came uh to save sinners by shedding his innocent blood dying on the cross defeating death by um being raised from the dead within three days and that provides a pathway for the salvation of mankind because we're so fundamentally flawed that we could never hope to do it ourselves. Essentially, Jesus's death emancipates us from the failure and the inability to live up to the law. Jesus raised the bar himself. He said, uh, you know, it's, uh, you've heard it said that uh, thou shalt not commit adultery, but I tell you, if you even looked at a woman, you've lusted after her in your heart. He did this to up the ante so high that nobody could say that they, uh, 
you know, had never fallen. Because before you could get people that, you know, never committed adultery, never murdered, never actually stole something, never, uh, um, you know, worshipped a false god. Jesus said, wait, 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 hang on. Just because you never bowed to a statue uh, who, you know, doesn't mean that you, you haven't had an idol in your life. An idol is something that supplants the importance of God. Adultery is looking at a person other than your spouse with lust. Hatred of your neighbor or hatred of anybody is murder. Jesus upped the ante. He raised the bar so high that nobody could possibly escape the terror of uh, the law, the Ten Commandments. And then what he did was he died because uh, Jesus was sinless and uh, the shedding of innocent blood which before Jesus had to be the slaughter of a lamb, uh, took place in our place. So that's, of course, the gospel message. All of scripture is leading up to that point. Inerrancy of uh, the scripture isn't talking about the surface level details. Like uh, if another author, uh, hundreds of years apart from another one, says uh, Uriah the Hittite slayed Goliath, not King David. That's not technically the type of contradiction that's being talked about. It's not, uh, you know, people get really hung up on that kind of thing. Like we need to make allowances for uh, writing styles. We need to make allowances for the type of structure of writing, whether it's apocalyptic literature, whether it's an oracle, yeah, whether it's a, I'm not going to be, I'm not, I'm way past all those like, Oh, but other Christians minor, aren't sure. I get that. You know, Christians like this will destroy yeah. relationships. I've seen it happen. Like I've, you know, fallen victim to it. There are certain people who I dearly love who I can never have conversations about any of this with. And it, it pains me. It does. Sure. And the, but the thing was like, as a kid, I used to read this stuff. Uh, and I used to think it, like it never, like, where are people getting, you know, these arbitrary numbers of age of the earth? Why are people so hung up on this? It's because so, of this post enlightenment Protestant push towards the Bible. The Bible has to be completely correct. Literally. Not just in the sense of that it means something, but it has to be literally true or else it doesn't matter. And if you hold fast to the, even if you don't even really believe it, just say you do. It becomes this pretend thing. Yeah, it does. Like a lot, a lot of these Protestants, fall in line a lot of these Protestants have yeah. to ignore science, have to ignore rev evolution. They have to ignore like basic, like, uh, one plus one equals two stuff just to pretend that. Everything's fine. Yeah, and then, of course, nowhere is is any of that found in uh, the Bible. The fossil record conforms uh, exactly with what we read in Genesis. Whether you believe in evolution uh, or you believe God, you know, created each species. I mean, my own mind is not, like, made up on that yet. I can say this, though. If evolution uh, is the truth, if evolution is not the truth, in no way will that affect my faith in Jesus Christ and uh, who he says that he is. Because that's what makes a Christian. What makes a Christian or breaks a Christian is what you believe about Jesus Christ. Nothing else. Absolutely nothing else. Do That's it. Do you mind if I get a little tough on you with some, some questions from, from the Jewish point of view? Yeah, go right ahead. These have been, sure. for me, these were convincing enough when I was a Christian to qu start questioning things from... When I heard, when I, when the Jewish point of view, it's not the atheist point of view. This is going to be from the Jewish point. Let, let's assume that this Old Testament God is real, yeah. right? Then why is it, why wouldn't he tell Moses and people after and Jeremiah and Isaiah, wait for Jesus to come, my son, who's here right now? Because he's pre existed. 
Why? Where's? How come Jesus just randomly appears in the first century, but you don't hear about? Him? Ah, so that's interesting uh, that you brought that up. Uh, one of the readings in um, Mass, I think it was last week, uh, was the account of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Now, what a person believes about uh, the Book of Daniel, and um, which is one of the most complex books in the Bible. The first half is a narrative that may or may not be historical. The, right. uh, the second half is probably the deepest book of prophecy that you can po uh, get to outside of the Book of Revelation. The reason I bring it up is this. To answer your question, Neil, when King Nebuchadnezzar puts Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego into the fire because they refuse to worship the golden statue that he's erected. What I'm paraphrasing this. Uh, my apologies if I bastardize a little bit. But his comment when he puts them into the fire is, did I not put three people into the fire? Yes, that's correct, King, you did. Then why are there four people in the fire right now? And the fourth, his appearance is like the son of God. Which is what the Hebrew phrase is for the angels. There is no word for angel. It's Benny, Benny Elohim, son of God. Yeah, so, but that doesn't. I'm just kidding. I'm just pretending I'm a Jewish guy. I'm a Jewish rabbi right now. I'll say that's an angel. So, so Benny, look, Job. You know the book of Job. Oh yeah. It's it a, says one of the, uh, and the Benny Elohim aligned themselves in front of El El uh, El Sadai. That's the angels. The translation is the angels. Huh. I didn't actually know that that was the translation. Yeah, the word in the in the he, in the Greek. See, that's why I'm the, talking to you. Well, we're just we're just, like, we're just talking. Yeah, the Greek. Stuff. So the Greek Septuagint, it's angelos. Okay. Angelos is, means messenger. We get it now. It turns into angel in English. That that word angelos. I love the etymology of it because it's used for Hermes, the messenger of Zeus. It's used for Artemis. It's used for Nike. You know the goddess yeah. Nike who victory. Nike angelos. The Nike the messenger. Well, then can but I ask in, you why Hebrew, it's in the masculine? Real, in real quick, and real quick. In the Hebrew, they don't use angelos. They use Beni Elohim, son of God, sons of God. So sons of God are angels. They're literally the sons of Elohim. Yeah, the sons are stars of uh, God in, 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 in the later book. Okay, that I'm not going to pretend uh, off the bat like, oh, well, but this and this, like, I actually, I did not know that. That's something that I want to uh, no, and, and into. That's it. That That's I I'm curious if it's capital, if it's a capitalized S or a lowercase. There is S. no capital back then. OK, so are you saying that was a later? Yeah. Uh, appending the, to the. Are you talking about the he, um, which what you talking about the Hebrew? I'm talking well, like in in the passage uh, that I'm citing, the Book of Daniel. If if uh, when Nebuchadnezzar if we go with the Hebrew, the it would God. be Beni Elohim. And there's no capitals. It's just all it's all the same. Hebrew doesn't have capitals. Oh, so you just wouldn't know. Learn something new every day. Yeah, you just wouldn't know. Um, so that that's okay. Sorry, it caught me up. No, no, and it doesn't mean that doesn't mean that you don't have the right. So it's to like unto an eight. Yeah, but that's so that's. I love finding out things like yeah, this. Yeah, no, it doesn't mean it instance, doesn't mean you can't interpret it the way you want to interpret it. Like it's not like you're you're well the juice. Well, it. that's not the defining like passage. Like right, that, no, that, I get it. that's why that I'm that was that. like one example uh, that you know kind of spoke to me. I sure, would say sure. that the biggest example uh, for me, I think that we might have brought this up before, you and I, um, the books of the major prophets. There are just certain prophecies found in the book of jeremiah and isaiah that i can't get around i've read the arguments because i i didn't want to be a christian uh for the longest time if if i could have picked my faith it would have been something akin to universalism because it's easy 
to 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 believe, and you can kind. Of, it's kind of like a build a thing. I know some Christians that are universalists. They're all good people too. Yeah, I um, you know, if there was something that I could have picked, you, you know, to like, you know, like 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 pick a belief, it probably would have been that for me because it it doesn't really, you know, you can invent essentially your your own version of everything, but. It wasn't until I really got into the books of the prophets for me, and I started reading things like, you know, the um, son of man shall be nailed to a tree, a crown of thorns placed upon his head. Again, I'm paraphrasing. Uh, forgive me if I... Um, I think you're thinking of Zechariah, really where his feet will touch the Mount of Olives. Yes. And then you have a yes. suffering servant in Isaiah. There, yeah. But, they're, like, the books of the major prophets are replete with things that were written hundreds of years before... Uh, yeah, no, yeah. ...any there. of this. And at that, at, so what that did... Uh, for me, you know, I, I, I've heard arguments, uh, saying, you know, well, uh, it was a conspiracy to elevate Jesus to the person, uh, to Godhood by him having a crown of thorns placed on his head. It was you know, the a part of the narrative that w was thrown in it, all this. At that point, it seems that these people, um, tend towards being guilty of what, they often accuse Christians of being guilty with, which is bending and contorting the uh, what they're reading uh, to match uh, their own belief system. It's just uh, to to think that you have a man uh, who was born in Bethlehem. Uh, you have, uh, you know, he starts doing all these miraculous uh, signs. He winds up declaring himself the son of God, performing all of these miracles, and then he's condemned to, de to death uh, on a cross, yeah. which uh, which makes you become sin if you're nailed to uh, a a tree uh, or, or a cross. Sure. People bartering for his robe uh, and all this. And it, it just, at, the, it's, at that point, it became... I see impossible for me to like so get around. Do you want do you want me to grab the text? Because I and I'm gonna I'm gonna get, I'm gonna steal man for you for a second. Let's go through these. You're talking about Psalm 22, Isaiah 53, and Zechariah whatever. We'll find it. Which one is uh, Psalm? Zechariah is the one where he touches his feet will touch the Mount of Olives. Psalm 22 is the one where he talks about um, you know, he's basically it's it's the scene of like uh he's getting what is it? He's being surrounded, and it says uh, his nails, his feet, nail, nailing my hands and feet. I think it says, but there's another. The, the Hebrew translation says, "Lion surrounded me," but we can look at both. Like this would be fun. I think it'd be fun, right? It's always fun. And then, uh, and uh, you know, so. You wanted to you you put you thought of something while we were off on Daniel, right? Yeah. Uh, one thing that I wanted to bring up, and also this is why. So it's important to me, um, you know, and and hopefully I'm conveying it properly. But uh, a Christian, anyone really, but you know, especially Christians, uh, shouldn't be afraid to embrace still being on the journey. You know, still like learning and deepening, you know, one's faith and um, uh, amending things, uh, you know, uh, that they've believed uh, when pressed, uh, or not pressed, that's not the word I'm looking for, but like when presented with new information like that, far from being a problem, that's part of the joy 
of the faith. And that's part of the reason that I do love the Catholic Church is because the Catholic Church, um, you know, has obviously adopted various discoveries as they're made and proclamations are then made and things are put into practice in the Catholic Church. It's so rigorously organized. It's a thing of beauty. But, like, I do want to – it's important for me to state that. Like, my views upon certain things are unchanging. I will always believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Always. That's just, it's, there are a variety of reasons for that, but the shades of what that means are in a state of, you know, hopefully constant development. And so that's what part of the reason I love talking to Neil about things is because Neil always presents me with hard types of uh, information that I haven't like yet encountered. And we, that's just part of the reason that I, I love you, buddy. Uh, but one thing that I, uh, the reason that I gave that little preface is because, uh, this is the first time that I've ever, you know, explored what he and I were just talking about in any uh, greater depth in a number of years. And so I looked it up and I did find this. Um, I'm just going to read it verbatim. Uh, I found this on a Google search that I just run. It said, it was Nebuchadnezzar who saw the fourth man who looked like the son of God walking around in the midst of the fire. The Hebrew number for four is Dalet. It means a door. Jesus said, I am the door. The way to deliverance. So I had said that everything is leading up to the person of Jesus. And Jesus, of course, you know, made some wonderful, wondrous, you know, mystical, um, you know, just earth shaking statements about himself and uh, about life and about the cosmos, about spirituality. And, you know, spoke in a tremendous amount of metaphor that people are still unpacking uh, today. And he did say, uh, I am the door. And I just, I don't know, I find things like that, like small little details now that we're getting into the fundaments here, to be far from causing a problem for my faith, it, it enriches it. So if something is presented to me that challenges a certain viewpoint that I've held, I always wind up finding something that uh, reinforces or deepens my belief or view of the topic at hand. Yeah, and I, I just remembered that this... Daniel's written in the Aramaic dialect of Hebrew. The word for son is bar, not ben. Oh, that's what bar means? Bar, bar, yeah, bar and ben mean the same thing. Okay. Bar, bar is the Aramaic, ben is the Hebrew. Because in the New Testament, there are a lot of, uh, you know, like Simon bar this. Yes, yeah, that's what that bar means. Simon that, bar, like, son of the. I always wonder. And if you ever that, see Simon so. ben, it's the same thing. It's, okay. just, it's just one is Aramaic. So if you see some. Shine forth is like the son of God. Form of the fourth position. And it says forth like is the son of God. And then you see, I don't know if you can see that. It yeah. says El Bar Elohim. Yep. Now, if we go back to Job, it says the sons of God came before him to present themselves. Um, And the sons of God, Beni Elohim. So Beni and Bar, are, are they interchangeable? Or yes. Or are they shades of the, like the same meaning? Like... They, they both mean son. Okay. Yeah. So the word for angel in Hebrew or Aramaic is either Bar Elohim or Beni Elohim. But it also could mean son of God. So you're not wrong. Yeah. But I'm just saying, if, if I was a Jewish person and you said that to me, I would say, that just means angel. I'm just kidding, you know, and, and, but that doesn't mean you're wrong. So I'm not, I'm, doesn't no, mean, it doesn't. Yeah, it means you are right. It does say son of God. This is um, part of the reason that I love going into topics like this is because uh, one thing uh, that is also important is it it's prophesied heavily in the Bible that uh, Jesus will be rejected 
by his own people. And it's uh, certainly in the book of uh, Revelation that's touched upon, but it's touched upon, uh, you know, throughout as a prophetic element uh, that, you know, Jesus is going to be rejected. He's going to be denied, uh, you, you know, until the end by his own people. And uh, this is why I never understand all, also the hatred of the Jews uh, that has taken place historically in various um, elements of Christianity. It's like, I'm just like, well, yeah. the Lord that you worship is Jewish. Especially in the Spanish Inquisition. Uh, yeah. Oh, don't that was rough. That. That's, that's well, a dark rabbit hole. Yeah. So. I wanted to pull up some of these verses that are a lot of, like you like you pointed out how they look like they're pointing to Jesus. Okay. Here's from Zechariah 14, verse 3. The Lord shall go forth and fight against those nations, fighting as on a day of battle. That day his feet shall rest upon the Mount of Olives, which is opposite Jerusalem to the east. The Mount of Olives shall be cleft in two from east to west by a very deep valley, and a hall of the mountain shall move to the north and half of it to the south. So Matthew play, Matthew is, uh, uses that and says that when Jesus was on the cross that the earth had a chasm. You know what I'm talking about. Mm -hmm. yeah. There is one big problem with the Matthew uh, passage. None of the other four gospels, none of the three gospels talk about the chasm and the earth opening up. It's only Matthew that seems to remember that. So I'm glad and that's that you... kind of a big thing that you think historic Josephus doesn't talk about this. I'm glad that you brought that up too. So um, this is another reason that I love the Catholic church. Um, one, I, I know Christians who say eh, it's not literal. So he's one just, huge he's... thing. Yeah. Well, people tend to, you know, cherry pick their own faith. Uh, I mean, we're all guilty of it. Regardless of what you believe, you know, we tend to you know, kind of cherry pick the elements that speak to us personally. It's a human condition. But one thing that uh, I, I find to be endemic uh, among uh, Protestants as a movement is that it seems on the whole, and I grew up with this, when you have issues of uh, like uh, end times prophecy, uh, these eschatological Eschatology, issues. Yeah. yeah. Um, Everybody, you know, always, you know, seems to point uh, towards the fact that none of it's been fulfilled yet, that it's all, you know, talking about the time of the tribulation. Everyone's looking for the Antichrist. And again, my mind isn't entirely made up on that, but it's very problematic. I have always tended to believe that because Jesus himself said uh, after he gave his uh, prophecies, he said, and surely this generation shall not pass until all these things have been fulfilled. Uh, and that yeah. presents a lot of problems uh, <laughs> for people. And I, it always seemed, you know, intuitive that you know there will be a. I tend to believe that there will be a, a, a general time of trouble. You, you know, whether we're in it or whether there's still more to come, who knows? But I uh, always took that uh, these prophecies uh, to have been, uh, in large part, fulfillments of uh, like the reign of Nero, for instance. The beast, and uh, it, um, there is one element that uh, you know that gives me pause, and that is the destruction of uh, the Jewish nation in AD seventy and the diaspora, and then the nation of Israel coming together again in nineteen forty eight, uh, post World War Two. As far as I know, I think that that's the only nation in history where it's been destroyed utterly, and then it's uh, revived itself um thousands of years 
later, which seems to be pretty miraculous. It seems to be a hell of a coincidence uh, to me that the One Nation being prophesied about uh, as being destroyed and then having to exist in order for a lot of these prophecies to be fulfilled, uh, that that nation should happen to be the nation of Israel, which of course was destroyed after the temple was destroyed uh, in AD 70. The diaspora happened, and then of course the reunification of Israel in 1948. But, but the Catholic Church, you know, makes a tremendous amount of allowance for uh, ad subscribing to d different views about biblical prophecy. And it's that type of latitude, it's that type of uh, development of philosophy that, you know, really appealed to me and you know where there's a real power uh because i don't have to forego my intellect i don't have to feel yeah. bad when i discover things that you know cause but difficulty. let me ask you, let me ask you this do you actually think that when jesus was on the cross that there was a chasm in the ground and dead bodies came out as zombies do i believe that uh the uh, saints were resurrected yeah yes absolutely you do yeah wow. but but here's the thing like i don't know if that means bodily or if that means that these people were taken uh up to heaven what i do absolutely that's what believe... a lot of christians are a lot to get around that that's what they'll say they'll... see i don't know if it's getting around because think it... about it though matt why would matthew be the only person to remember this and no one else in history all the historians josephus forgot about so an, an the, event like that that's a really good uh that's a major viewpoint. event so you there never are never forget that there are things in each four uh, of the four gospels that don't uh appear that seem to be pretty major and this is one of the things i love about the gospels taken as a whole and why they're you know presented as the gospels as sort of a unit is because it's different authors giving shades of how they sure. experienced uh christ and so what's important to them and what's going to make the cut uh, in their own retellings of this is going to be different from author to author. Yeah. So, uh, you know, John, uh, you know, seems to be the most, uh, I, I, I guess. Spiritualized. Yes, but also in many ways the most historic, um, like, you know, point A to point B, like it's describing like a specific, you know, like linear timeline. Sure, it's, I get what you're saying. Um, Luke always, you know, seemed to me to, and I don't mean this pejoratively, I, you know, like Luke seems to be like a lot more of a flowery author, you know, who his gospel seems to be a lot more personal that, you know, hits your heart. John hits my mind and John hits my historical. John was the one that was heavily, conviction. heavily uh, used by Gnostics because it start because of this Logos and Zoe concept. There's a, in, in the beginning was a Logos and life. Oh, yeah, how he starts out that, the book. That yeah. word life is uh -huh. Zoe. And because there's no capital capital in the letters, was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. Yeah, interesting. That, uh, uh, but the Gnostics go deeper with this one. They translate it as, and and he when he came to be through him was life, which is Zoe, and this Zoe was the light of human, and they and they think that Zoe was an actual deity, side by side with. So the Valentin, oh, the mean. Valentinians had a, had a trinity. It was God the Father, Theos, the Christ. And then Zoe, Zoe was the spirit. Yeah, they the actually, Father, Son, and the Holy they spirit. actually, but they actually paid attention to that. It wasn't like the Holy Spirit, how it's like kind of neglected as like this other thing. It is neglected. I've neglected the well, Holy Spirit. I have to thank that, my wife for that's this. That's what I'm saying. Look up, look into this Valentinians. Their Trinity. They have Zoe in the in this Gospel of John, and they say that this is a, just equally as important as Jesus. It wasn't until and it's a female too. So it wasn't until meeting uh, my wife. Uh, it, um, it was interesting that you said that you know the neglect of the Holy Spirit. I. By the way, the Valentine has almost become the bishop of Rome. He was almost the pope. The Holy he was, he was the second most votes to get there. The 
Well, Just think about that. Almost imagine, a- imagine how much history would have changed if Valentinus, who believed in this Zoe character, imagine if every church you went into, you would see the father, the son, and the daughter. That's that's what would have happened. I'm trying to wrap my head around that right now. Try to wrap your head around that. Okay, Psalm 22. I just found this out just now. The Catholic Bible has the same as the Hebrew. It doesn't say that his hands and feet were were pierced. So Jerome, by the way, Jerome was fluent in Hebrew. He lived in Israel. He's the one who put this together. He must have been following the Hebrew. Because look at many dogs surround me. A pack of evildoers close in on me. So wasted are my hands and feet that I can. The uh, the other translation. Oh, right here. They stare at me and gloat. They divide my garments among no, them. Yeah, no, that, that's all there. That's not the Hebrews have nothing to say for my that. clothing. Uh, for my clothing, they cast lots. Like that detail is so utterly specific. But there's no, there's no piercing of his hands and feet in here. Yeah, uh, this is Catholic, dude. That, so, so, but I, I respect this because Jerome was following the actual Hebrew, whereas the the Greek Old Testament. They they threw the they pierced his hands and feet and like whoa well, that's a little specific. Well, I mean, like also in 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 uh, crucifixion, your wrists would have been pierced because your ha- if you right. nailed your hands. It, and I, for me, this has always been like a crucial detail. But you know what like, this you know what this psalm is actually about, right? It's which, about uh, it's about. So this is uh, oh yeah, uh-huh. this well, is a psalm of what happened to the king when they when the them, when the Babylonians came and took the king out and they cut his eyes out they 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 uh they tied up his hands cut his eyes out so he was blind and arrested him and brought him to babylon this is that's what this is about so you can now that's what the if i was a jewish person and we're talking i'm gonna say that's not about jesus we know that we know who that's about that's about i think it's joaquin or one of the it also could be an example of what is uh often uh, what the bible is replete of which is uh prophecies that have uh, a they, clear double meaning so okay, the king what, of Tyre. That's, that's what I was going to say. The, the the group of Josephus writes about a group of Jews called the Essenes, and the Essenes, what they would do all day, they lived in the desert, and they would take Old Testament and they would reapply them to new events. So this, you can say, that's the same thing right there. But the, there's also this idea of a suffering servant in Isaiah that's 53. That's a huge element of uh, the faith. Yeah, yeah Isaiah 53. Servant. Okay, Isaiah 53 is about, you know. Uh, let's see. He gives his life as an offering for sin. He shall see his descendants in a long life and he will, he, and the will of the Lord shall be accomplished through him. Do you know how, but here's the thing though, before you even say anything, and I I admit these are all interesting. Number one, we have to admit that Christians can be drawing from this and applying it to Jesus. But number two, we have to be also be honest that Isaiah, when he talks about this, he says that the servant of the Lord is Israel. Mm-hmm. So what he's doing is he's taking Israel, being going through so much pain, being conquered by Babylon, they became the suffering servant to God by, by keeping their faith. So there's two things that you can be happening. Either this is just about Israel, and the Christians are drawing from this and applying it to Jesus. It seems pretty clear to me that it's both. But you can also say, I'm, I'm steel manning for you, you can also say, this was about Israel, and then Jesus came and died, and now it's about Jesus. It's double meaning. So you can do that, fine. But you, as long as we all, I think it should be at least understood, the original context for this text. Oh, of course. Absolutely. Anybody that's, uh, by the way, anyone who would shy away from that. I agree. I have to question uh, the fervency of their 
faith and what they're actually in it for. Like, far from threatening the faith, like, things like this should reinforce it. Uh, and and like, to be fair, the, the heavy hitters of Christianity, Dale C. Ellison Jr., Dom, John Dominic Crossan, even, uh, what's your guy's name? Um, uh, what's his name you were just talking about before? William Lane Craig. William Lane Craig. They all admit this. They all know this. They're not. Oh, they, yeah, of course. They're not trying to say it's just about Jesus. So no, I, it's, 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 it's both. I mean, it, it's, um, and that's not only, that's not one isolated example. That's like a running theme in scripture. And also, we have the benefit of 2,000 years of hindsight. Uh, the <laughs> people that were writing the Gospels were writing it as contemporaries of Jesus or removed by about 30 years in the case of two of the Gospels. Like, they didn't have thousands of years of rigorous study. The Bible hadn't even have it wasn't even codified yet. We act, you know, like anybody could go into some marketplace in Rome and just pick up, you know, a, a finished Bible. Like, we as a culture need to remember that uh, the Bible wasn't even formed and codified until Constantine the Great. Right, and before that, you have people like Valentinus, people like Marcion, yeah, it was who a had typical thing. I got to appeal to C.S. Lewis about this because C.S. Lewis uh, brings uh, not only this up, but he also brings up Mithras. He brings up sure. all the archetypal uh, gods that seem to mirror uh, you know the narrative of Christ, you... and he says like. All of these things don't threaten my faith; they reinforce it sure. because everything. In well, do you know? Do you know there was a not? Do you know there was a Christian called the Nasin preacher, who lived in Turkey. Nasin. In this, not Nasin. N A. Oh, N A. N A A S S E N E. No, never even heard of Nasin. It means serpent guy, serpent man. Really? So he believed that Jesus was the incarnation of Osiris, of Attis, of Adonis, of Pan. Pan. Of That's he he basically was named all the pagans. So he took he took this he okay. took this Homeric hymn that was for Attis, and he reapplied it to Jesus. He was so popular in his time, but he also had this theology of, you know how Moses takes the serpent up in the desert, puts yeah. it on puts it on a stick. He said, that's what Jesus, that's Jesus, that you need to just, all you need to do is believe in this serpent on a cross. That's why he's called the serpent guy, the Nazi. Oh, preacher. to um, uh, cure the afflicted uh, people of the boils yeah. and the snake bites. And, sure. And, so, and uh, that's why G the name Jesus means like savior. Which is salvation. a amazing allegory because of no, course and, and that's what Satan I'm saying. That's, that's why it is a snake. That's what I do on my channel. I'm trying to resurrect these early Christian ideas and to show people yeah, it's like. beautiful. There's I don't different, know why. The, the, or the closer we get to Jesus, the more diverse Christianity is. Well, it was still in. I mean, even John the ba people, you know, never bring this up or rarely bring it up. Even John the Baptist, who baptized Christ, uh, sent a, a message to Jesus when he was in prison, asking if he was the Son of God. Even the jury was. It, like, even John the Baptist didn't understand, and it, it wasn't like he just knew automatically. He had to ask uh, and have uh, the question put to Jesus on his behalf and again this is why like i probably wouldn't be a christian without the example of a person like c.s lewis who takes uh historical issues like this and what we're talking about these prototypical phases things that predate christ by hundreds you know or in some cases probably you know a thousand plus years and you know sees in it how history is uh far from being a conspiracy uh on part of the followers of Christ to deify him, how everything before any of these people was leading up to it, preparing the way in our hearts and minds for him. And essentially that's why I'm a Catholic uh, is because it, I just have an easier time uh, in the Catholic church, not just um, 
recognizing this, but it, it, it seems to be uh, in, encouraged for me to, to, to celebrate it. And I wouldn't be a Christian, you know, without all these things, because it, it is fascinating. It's fascinating to sit around and like go word for word in the original text uh, yeah. like this. It's so rare to have these types of conversations. It really anymore. is. And, uh, you know, without most people, people get too emotional about like the idea yeah. that I'm challenging, like, you know, it should be challenging. And, I, and that's why I wanted. That's why I like talking to you is like you're not. In the Bible, like, what's there to be afraid of? Let's talk about it. Yeah, exactly. Well, I, you know, because as a Christian, I I'm following a command that we find in the Bible, and uh, that's to be a Berean. You know about the Bereans? They were the original skeptical uh, inquiry society. They were like the original textual critics. They had, um, and were commanded, you know, to not just adhere to uh, all this, you know, to examine it, to enforce our faith, to not have it, you know, just be some blind thing that's based on emotionalism. If you ask a person, I just watched uh, that show uh, about Waco with, with Michael Shannon, and it's like, I think it was 10 episodes. If you asked a Branch Davidian, uh, you know, who, who wound up burning to death in that uh, tragedy, if David Koresh was the, the Lamb of God, they would have looked at you point blank and said, absolutely, I know that he is. So what good uh, does a person's personal experience of anything of any of these things do anybody? You have to have a reason that's grounded in criticism, that's grounded in the sciences, that's grounded in the trenchancy of history, as malleable as it might seem. But you ha it's got to be something more. Otherwise, it's just going to be every man will be an island. Uh, unto themselves and what's the point of believing or subscribing uh in anything if we can just you know, sit and say well i feel like this and my heart tells me that the heart is deceitfully wicked desperately incurably ill that god said that who can understand it yeah. so it's got to be informed by something more than the heart it has to be challenged by people like neil it's got to be challenged by people sure. like uh, derek from uh you know mid vision it's got to be challenged uh, and, and reinforced. And if it can withstand those tests and still speak, then you've got something that's real and worth subscribing to that's not uh, so easily dropped. And um, that's uh, far from being a problem for my faith. The Catholic Church, uh, I've found uh, from my own experience, uh, has not just uh, reinforced that for me, but promoted it and is actively growing that mentality within me. So you think this is what we can this is the last thing we can talk about is uh do you think that the church should be able to grow alongside with society and progressing and um how what is your thoughts on going forward in the future with the church what do you think what is your vision I think that uh the church should progress uh in terms of its acceptance of uh science and historical discoveries i think in absolutely no uncertain terms that the church should have should never under any circumstance bend the knee to the whims of a society that jesus himself said is going to hate you if you follow him i can't stand when the church or any uh sect of christianity attempts to harmonize its uh tenets with what our modern culture tells us and dictates to us needs uh, to be adopted almost at a sort of a philosophical gunpoint or in other cultures at a, quite a literal gunpoint. The faith is going to stand in its traditional uh, sense, in the plain sense of the word, it's simply going to stand against 
what society essentially uh, stands for. And our society, people are like, well, it's getting more and more and more evil. Like, that's not true. The only thing that is, like, we've always been evil degenerates. The only thing that's changed uh, socially is, the only thing that separates us from any other era is technology, is the widespread dissemination of the filth and the compromise and the flat-out degenerate evil that we see taking place around us at all times. That's the only thing that's changed. What do changed. you mean by that? What I mean is that uh, every single uh, lifestyle, uh, every single uh, choice, every single uh, worldview now is not just tolerated but celebrated as long as it makes you feel good and you believe it. The only thing that is not tolerated is so-called intolerance, which, of course, differs from person to person. If you're a Bible-believing Christian, Jesus himself, the God that you purport to worship, said, the world will hate you because it hated me first. You're going to have to make choices that are hard, that will make you seem to people who are uh, willfully blind to what we actually believe, that will make you seem like a hate monger, you're going to be called all kinds of names. You're going to be canceled. You're going to be like, that's nothing new. The, the society canceled Jesus, you know, uh, pretty ultimately. <laughs> okay. So I consider it a badge of honor. Frankly, I, 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 I remarked to my uh, wife, like if I ever found myself in a position where I was fired for my beliefs, I would consider it to be a flat out honor at that point. And so I do believe that the church absolutely needs to uh, not just, um, uh, not just allow for uh, challenges, but uh, if scientific uh, truths, which are you know fairly incontrovertible, are brought to the attention uh, of society in a wider way, why shouldn't uh, that be adopted and celebrated? We're talking about God's creation, and, and He gave us a dynamic spirit. Yeah, but not, every, not to... everybody believes that, though. Yeah, well, you, how do you believe... deal with that? Not uh, like like which, like which, which if part? I imagine if I said like. We all should be celebrating Shivaism, you know, the, the destroyer, the blue god of Hinduism. We should now all. Now I am become death, the destroyer. Yeah, of we worlds. should all be celebrating this particular tradition of Hinduism that that worships Shiva. We should all. Everyone needs to do that. Wouldn't you be like, no, I don't believe that. Yeah, but that's I I, I mean like. You're talking about what I identify as a false god. Now, science That's can be called saying. a false god as well, but I'm talking about things that can be demonstrated in a laboratory. I'm talking about, you know, when a book of, uh, when literature, like books of the Bible, for instance, is carbon dated to be a certain date, like, uh, that's as close as you, as one can get to a scientific fact. And yeah, uh, the church, uh, one of the great traditions of the Catholic Church was, uh, that it, um, not only commissioned some of the greatest works of art of all time, but, uh, you know, it, it, it also represented itself as a repository of dissemination, uh, it, like sort of like a record keeper, in a way, of uh, discovery. Uh, it would send people on uh, journeys. I mean, like, you know, in large uh, part, a lot of the money that financed uh, um, Columbus, regardless of what one believes about him as a person, uh, you know, sent missions of exploration out there. Uh, that is a tradition of the Catholic Church, uh, we're, we're kind of famous for suppression, but that's not uh, always the case. That was a case, certainly a shameful one for a tremendous amount of time. But it was also a mission of the church to uh, propagate discovery, to uh, adopt uh, scientific truths as well as uh, they can be understood. So to answer your question, 
I believe that the church uh, should continue doing what it's doing in terms of science and uh, history, which is adopting uh, the viewpoints which seem to be fairly incontrovertible. Uh, but in social terms, I no, I don't believe that it should be a haven for, oh, well, it's not a lie if you believe it. Like, uh, no, Un uh, like there are going to be things that are enmity to, to society that uh, scriptures that Jesus himself. Do you said. but do you think as a member of a church that you can do what you like with your family, but also people outside of the church can do what they will like with their family? And do you think there's a way to coincide to coexist without you being ha you having to go out of your way to like? You know, I'm not saying you do this, but like somebody like, oh, I have to attack you for who you are because my my religion says that you're you shouldn't exist or something like that. What do you, is there a way oh, to balance that out? Mean. Is there a way to balance out like you let you you believe in this tra tradition? You believe in this religion? I believe it. So you're going to do what it tells you to do. But also people who don't believe in it are going to live their lives. And you might not agree with the way they're living their life, but do do you un, do, would you still coexist in life? Oh, them? absolutely. Oh, I mean, well, well, look at you and I. Yeah, you and I essentially. I mean, I wouldn't say we believe fundamentally different things because your belief uh, system, like I, I don't understand. Like it's in such a constant state of uh, d development that it's hard to keep up. If if uh, <laughs> but like you and I disagree on a lot of major points, and you're somebody that I love like a brother. Uh, but like. I fundamentally disagree with a lot of the things you believe and vice versa. It in no way should that affect your liberty to believe them okay. in safety. And, uh, it, I mean, I don't it, like nowhere did it, it uh, did Jesus command uh, the suppression of those things either. He just said, don't compromise your own belief uh, systems when you see the people around you who you're supposed to love and pray for uh, believing diametrically opposed things i mean jesus jesus's first act was to rescue a prostitute from being stoned to death good point it like that should show you everything like he wasn't sitting and eating dinner with the pharisees that's the one he thing the pharisees. that's the one thing about the new testament that i've always thought was fascinating is that it gives you enough there's enough passages that portray jesus that you can sort of he's very multi-dimensional He's not just doing one thing and believing in one way. He's sort of you can you can apply that Jesus, the one that defends the adulterer, to certain things in the world. You can also apply this other Jesus to other. You can sort of use the different passages of Jesus for different things. So he, I'm glad that you said that because you're right. He defended the adulterer, but he did not defend the adultery. He defended the person. He didn't defend the lifestyle. Which sure, is okay. a fundamental difference, and I guess that is the best answer I can give to the I, question I, okay. that illustrates Jesus. Like, just because I don't agree with a certain lifestyle does not make me a hate monger. It doesn't make anybody a hate monger. It just means I disagree with the lifestyle for my own reasons. It doesn't mean sense. I hate those people. It doesn't, you know, mean yeah. any of that. And that's the badge that, unfortunately, you know, Christians more and more are accepting wearing that is issued to them. I don't accept it. I reject it. Uh, this hate the sin, love the sinner thing, as trite and saccharine as it sounds— it is true. That is essentially what is commanded of us. I d disagree fundamentally with so many different belief systems and lifestyles as the people who adhere to them disagree with me. It doesn't mean that those people aren't my friends. It doesn't mean that they can't, you know, uh, help me 
uh, in various ways or I can't help them, it doesn't mean that we can't coexist. It just means that I'm not going to sit there and tell them, yeah, well, you know, whatever you believe, that's totally fine. If you ask me personally from belief system to belief system, lifestyle to lifestyle, I'm going to have opinions the same as everybody else does. My opinions happen to be called from the word of Jesus Christ, who I believe to be the son of the living God and God himself. And it's so simple and it's just so distorted for a variety of reasons. But that would, I guess, be my answer to that question. Wow. Uh, I just wanted to ask you this. Anything you have come going on? I know you're starting a channel. Anything yes, you want to promote? I'll drop the links in the description and uh, tell the people about that stuff. Yeah, thanks again, everyone, for uh, letting me come on and uh, hearing me out. And thank you, Neil. I love you, buddy. You are one of my closest friends um it's always I, fun to chat with you about this stuff <laughs> yes it is always a learning experience i am launching my own channel it's going to be uh primarily a music channel where i get very in-depth talking with a lot of the artists i've worked with um uh very briefly i I've, I've been very blessed to work with a lot of um pretty prominent artists among them the goo goo dolls uh and uh reign of kindo and um Denny Lane, who founded the Moody Blues and, and all that. And anyway, I'm going to be talking to a lot of my favorite artists and getting really deep into a lot of different musical issues. Uh, and it's going to be um, on... Uh, I'm going to be working with WNED, which is the classical uh, station. I just shot my first episode, which made me appreciate Neil's brilliance for editing so prolifically. It took me like two months to edit 50 minutes of a show. But it's going to be debuting um, this uh, spring. And nice. I would love it if uh, all of you would uh, join me. We're going to be talking about some heavy-duty artistic and uh, musical issues with a variety of um, really I'll great definitely artists. share it on the community tab when well, it comes out. why thank you. And, Neil, congratulations for all of your success. Um, you know, I, was, I feel blessed to have been there from the beginning uh, to see what you've built. I'm really proud of you. I think um, it's just profound uh, what you're doing, and I know that you're going to go a lot further. Thank you. And you have just attained true gnosis. You have just attained true gnosis. The Demiurge has no power over.